Sabbath as we count seven Sabbaths, but sometimes I humanly forget to mention it, but uh, it does say to count them. So we don't just do it once on the calendar, but we pay attention as they go by, and it helps prepare us for Pentecost that is coming. I might have a few comments about that before the sermon is over today. But I want to clarify a couple of points from last night to be sure uh, we understand they were correct and also that I made a slip of the tongue. Uh, The first of all was a slip of the tongue. I was discussing the time of the Roanoke uh, colony, uh, which was established. Ships landed on July 22nd of 1587, and I think I... I think I said 587. Somebody told me I put it about a thousand years off. (laughs) It wasn't 1,430 years, and they weren't 1,430 years in uh, Mitzrium either. It was 430 years to the day. And uh, this is shaping up after we've been here in this land now for 430 years under Satan's rule and uh, the growth of Babylon as we today know it in America, maybe God's spiritual people will begin to be delivered uh, this year. And uh, we'll see what time of year that works out, if indeed that is correct. I don't think that 430 years uh, is a coincidence. I think there's something to it. Why did God pick 430 years? Uh, it's, it's rounded off to 400 a t- place or two in the Bible, but it's made very clear it was exactly 430 years. Now, by time and chance, has it just been an accident that this country began to be settled exactly 430 years ago this year? Uh, we're Ephraim, we're Israel, and the Promised Land was here. And we were brought back, and we've perverted it, and we've been enslaved to Satan in his way essentially the whole time we've been here. Started out not quite so much, did it? Uh, even some of the pilgrims, when they got here, kept the Sabbath and the holy days, would not keep it, uh, Christmas and Easter. But Israel did not immediately go into an iron yoke slavery when they went into uh, Mitzrayim either. Uh, Joseph was in charge, and things were pretty good. They went to the land of Goshen, and it started out like a positive thing, just like coming to America started out as a positive thing. But it didn't take too long before we began to depart, and even those pilgrims, from the ways of God, and took on the cultures of the world and of Satan. And it's just gotten progressively worse now through our history in this land. So the parallel there is quite striking, really. And the other issue was my reference to Isaiah 7 uh, in the 65 years. Uh, I didn't take time to explain that all carefully again, but I think it's clear. When I mentioned that uh, 1953, when the Bilderbergers were organized, that uh, 65 years Less than 65 years later, Ephraim would be destroyed, that it would not be a, a nation anymore. I'm going to turn back to that just briefly and clarify the statement that was made. Uh, chapter 7 of Isaiah and uh, verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, 
And uh, we do have a Damascus in the Middle East, Syria now, and the Jews were bombing it just a couple days ago. Isaiah 27 is a prophecy about uh, uh, Damascus being destroyed here in the end time. And America is bent upon destroying the government of Assad in Damascus. So, is that prophecy very close to being fulfilled? That's what's on the table right today, at the moment, along with North Korea and other issues, but that's one of them. Uh, so, here it says, The head of Damascus is resin, and within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And he says to believe that, and then he gives a sign of Emmanuel how the woman, the church, would conceive, and God did reveal to us Emmanuel some years ago. But it says within uh, 65 years, before 65 years, in other words, within that time frame. It doesn't give a specific date. doesn't say 64 or 64 and a half or 64 years and 36, 340 days or anything of the nature. It says within that. So when you add 65 to 1953, yes, you get 2018. But what I'm saying is it's within 65 years, before the 65th year is reached. So that would make 2017, to me, a prime target for that. Just wanted to clarify so we know the, the math is within uh, what the Scripture is talking about. And for everything to work out, I'm thinking of giving you quite a chart about some of these things. I've got a lot of information that I have not uh, confided to you yet about some times and dates, and I'm thinking about doing it. Uh, I've hesitated because a lot of it, not all of it by any means, but, a, but quite a bit of it uh, is indicative of what we're doing. And uh, I think it all fits. So uh, I've hesitated to do that lest we appear to be blowing our horn or saying that we're, we're the it or some such thing. Because the only thing we are... Uh, remember that game of tag we played as kids? You're it. And you tagged you. Well, I think we're it. <laughs> we're, we're just barely surviving. We're struggling to be Christians. So... There's nothing special about us or this group or anything else except that God may use it uh, as a type or an example to others uh, with what happens to it. And a lot of what's happened to us hasn't been too good, just like it wasn't with Israel and so on. But it, I think, will turn out right in the long run. Anyway, I won't get into that today. Uh, we have had several themes running through... Uh, our studies during this period of time, uh, Exodus uh, showing the extreme difficulty that is involved in getting out of a sinful system and out of our own personal sins, and how God had to perform mighty and wondrous works in order to free His people from sin and Satan. Uh, we've also had a theme since we hit 12 of showing that we were doing things the wrong way in worldwide in terms of the eight-day instead of the seven-day observance, which the Bible clearly dictates, 
and I've spent quite a little time going over that <coughs> to renew it, to review it, to help us see that this is indeed correct, and there's no question about it. Uh, at the same time, I've hit the, the story of unleavened bread pretty hard, uh, because that has been a question, and uh, as I said before, Frank Nelty wrote a major paper, major to anybody else, might have been a short one for him, probably only a few hundred pages. Uh, I'm being sarcastic and jesting somewhat. But uh, there were things about our observance of Feasts of Unleavened Bread and the leavening that I feel needed to be straightened out, and I'm going to make a few more comments about that because I think we were out of balance. Uh, now, it is my job, whether people know that or not, to straighten out and to set practice correct. I believe God gave me a very direct commission and assigned me to do that. So I have been doing for many years, 21 years now, going about doing that exact thing, and some things I've learned on my own through God. Other things have come to me from other people who have presented them. Now, some stuff that has been presented to me has been wrong, and I had to sort it out and reject it. Some stuff has been presented which was right, and I had to study through it and accept it. All I care about is that we get it right. That's all that matters. I don't care who believes it. I don't care who doesn't believe it. Well, I care, but what I mean is it doesn't matter. I'm not here to be popular. I'm not here for money and people. Obviously, there aren't many people left, so I'm not here for the people. And if there's not many people left, there's not much money left. So I'm not here for the money either. I'm here to get things right, and that's all that matters. Okay? Now, let's go for a moment to the book of Luke. So I made some pretty strong statements about a former, what I consider a former minister of God, uh, in that he has rejected a great deal of the Bible. He said that since Luke was not an eyewitness of the things that happened on Passover night, he could not tell the story straight, and therefore we have to throw Luke's account out. So if we throw out his account of Passover, we also have to throw out anything else he said because it is subject also to the same uh, parameters. He might have got it wrong. <laughs> if he got one thing wrong, he certainly could have gotten something else wrong, right? What does Luke say? For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, so he says, many people have set this story down. Matthew, Mark, John, to name three. And I don't know how many others might have tried to chronicle everything that occurred <clears throat> because it was important to them. But he says, others have done this. Even as they delivered them to us, which were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word, servants of the Word of God, and who were eyewitnesses. So he went to the apostles who were eyewitnesses and put together from everything they said the whole story. 
he didn't just question one witness. He went to the eyewitnesses to be sure he had the story straight. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. I was right there, and I talked to the eyewitnesses right after, not after their memories clouded or years had gone by, uh, or they were old and decrepit. Of course, they got killed before they got that way, except for John. Anyway, from the very first... To write unto you in order, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. He says, I went to this effort to be absolutely sure it is correct down to the last detail. And I want to put it, lay it out for you so that it is perfectly understood. Now, there's where Luke is coming from. So when he wrote the story about the Passover and the order, he was correct. Now, if somebody has a different belief than that, what do they do? Now, obviously, they read what Luke said... And they have to agree that that is what Luke said. Okay? They have to understand what Luke said. In order to say, I've got to get rid of Luke. Because Luke seems to be contradicting what I believe. So instead of changing our belief, which you and I have done, he simply threw Luke out. And said, you can't count on him. He wasn't an eyewitness. Luke covered that right here from the very beginning. Now let's go to Acts 1. Do you get a clue of where I'm headed with this? Acts 1, verse 1. The former treaties, the former writing, have I made, O Theophilus. He addresses the very same individual that he did in Luke 1. So the former treatise here has to be the book of Luke. Of all that Emmanuel began both to do and teach. So in Luke, he wrote the things about Christ and the things Christ did there. And he wrote that about those things then. Until the day in which he was taken up. So Luke's story begins with the history of Christ from birth down to the time of his death. Uh, and how he showed himself alive. Then he goes on to give the same history, not of Christ, but of the apostles. So Luke was on the scene through Christ's ministry and wrote all about him from birth to death. Then he wrote this other book to be sure we understood the history of the beginnings of the New Testament. So God used Luke very, very powerfully to tell the whole story of the early New Testament church. Bottom line, if you don't believe the book of Luke and the things wrote there, and you have to throw Luke out, you've got to throw the book of Acts out too. 
<laughs> to be consistent. Because Luke wrote it too. So there's two books of the Bible that this man is absolutely thrown out of consideration as authoritative. And if you throw out two, it isn't too hard to throw out three, is it? So we get Deuteronomy 16 thrown out because it explains things that happened at Passover time the exact same way that Exodus 12 does. But if it doesn't fit your view of Leviticus 23, verse 6, I think it is, 5 or 6, then you've got to throw it out. You've got to throw out Exodus, and you've got to throw out De- uh, Deuteronomy. And just keep Leviticus 23, 6. Once you start this process, it's, it's never-ending. You get to the point, you judge what is Scripture and what is not Scripture instead of accepting the canon that God sent us. I believe God gave us His faithful Word. If this Bible is not the Word of God, then we have no basis for religion. It's our source. Now, sure, it's been translated, and all translations are not completely clear. And errors can be made. But that doesn't mean that the book itself is done away, and if we have brains, we can read context, and we can see mistranslations. And sometimes we can check the Hebrew or the Greek and see it. But you know, I very rarely need Hebrew or Greek. Very rarely need it. Once in a while, I'll use it. Context answers nearly everything. Herbert Armstrong emphasized that a lot. You've got to look at the context. What's being said here? What's the subject here? Does this translation fit that, or does it not? I looked up one the other night before a Bible study in the book of Proverbs, because it just didn't seem to make sense to me. So I want to check the Hebrew and got what that word was in that particular case. Uh, it cleared it right up. No problem. But you know, the problem with using the Hebrew and the Greek, one of the main problems is, and that's why it becomes a striving over words, is that generally uh, they'll give five or six or seven or eight different synonyms to use, and you can pick the one that fits your theory the best. Not necessarily the one that fits the context best, but the one that you like. That is a pitfall in using the Hebrew and the Greek. Now, the translators had to do that as well because they saw the different words that could fit there. But if they were honest and they were thinking logically, they examined the context very carefully to see which one of those synonyms fit that situation the best and then use that word. And sometimes they made a mistake. But I'll tell you this. I have studied this book from Genesis to Revelation back and forth many, many times, and it all fits together. It all fits together. The story is the same from cover to cover, and the whole thing is written for you and me here at the end time, and and that is expressed in Scripture itself, upon whom the ends of the world have come. So we can believe this book. And if somebody starts throwing parts of it out, I get very, very leery of that person. You know what? I trust Luke a whole lot better than I do somebody that says Luke doesn't count. And 
And I try to be very careful about what I change and don't change, and I try to study it out carefully because I know God holds me accountable for getting it right, especially since He commissioned me to do it. Got to get it right. Now, that is one reason I've spent as much, main reason I've been spending as much time on the uh, order of the Passover days and the number of them and on the leavening bread because I think we got out of balance and worldwide on uh, deleavening. I've had many women express to me over the years how by the time they dunked the toaster in soapy water, which is really good for electronic products, to try to get every last crumb out. Some even took the baseboards off the wall to be sure there was not a crumb behind the baseboards. I mean, it got crazy. And people even got self-righteous about it because they would start comparing how, how well they had cleaned with somebody else and how well they had cleaned. Get the beam out of your eye before you try taking the mold out of somebody else's. God is not that concerned about the days of unleavened crumbs. He's more concerned about the beams in our eyes. It's not the days of unleavened crumbs. Many women have expressed that they halfway resented their husbands because it fell on the lady to do most of the deleavening. She's the one that had to clean all the cupboards and do the spring cleaning, and he might vacuum the car. But she had to do that whole house. And it got them so tired and so weary and so focused on crumbs, they couldn't examine themselves spiritually because they were too overworked, too tired, too concerned about crumbs, so that they didn't have time to focus on examining themselves. Now, what does Paul tell us? He says, let a man examine himself. Our focus became examining crumbs instead of self. Now, that's out of balance. It's out of balance. I know how it started. Some bright individual made, a, in a way, a good point and that is that we need to get rid of the smallest sins in our lives. Not just the big ones, but the smallest ones. And therefore, crumbs equate to small sin. And you've got to get rid of every crumb. Well, I'll tell you this. Unless you get rid of some of the big chunks of bread in your life, you're not going to get rid of the crumbs in your life. <laughs> and we have enough big chunks of leaven in our lives that... Uh, Sure, give it consideration, you know, uh, to, to get it out. But it shouldn't become onerous. It shouldn't become so difficult and time-consuming and mind and emotion-consuming that you can't focus on the spiritual. Now, see, Satan has done this to us. He made Passover so difficult prior to it that you couldn't examine yourself and be confident that you were taking the Passover in the right attitude, having examined yourself and seen the unworthiness and pled to God to help you be in the right attitude when you got there. That spiritual cleansing is far more important than the physical. But we got to the point the physical cleaning overruled the spiritual cleaning. So that's out of balance. 
Now, Satan did the exact opposite. <clears throat> did the exact opposite to us at Feast of Tabernacles. He got our minds so much on feasting and fun and entertainment that our minds got to the point it was a vacation. And we were there to be entertained, to eat, drink, and be merry, and surf and fish and go to movies and you name it. It was a vacation, and people started leaving services and not even attending some days because they had a charter boat that they could get that day. Or they would come with their swimsuits underneath their clothes so that before the final song, they could run out the door shedding their clothes and be in the surface before we were even dismissed in prayer. They went before God said, you can go. When is the service over? When is his holy convocation finished? When When the final prayer is finished. It's still a holy convocation. What right do you have to leave? I mean, you might be throwing up. But you're not leaving for a purpose contrary to what that holy convocation is about. So it became a fun time. Why do some of our kids still, even though they don't have anything else to do with the church, why do they still want to go to the Feast of Tabernacles? They remember it as a fun time. It's like Christmas and Easter Christians. The only time they darken the door of a church is Christmas and Easter. It's a fun time. And there are people who do the same thing uh, with Feast of Tabernacles. How many of your kids get all excited about Passover? (laughs) If they're not part of the church. I dare say almost none. Come Feast of Tabernacles time, boy, they want to be included because that's fun, baby. So we were out of balance on that too. So God managed to lead us into perverting both the Passover, and the Feast of Tabernacles in opposite directions. One ditch on one and another ditch on the other. One became onerous and difficult and not much fun, and the other one was all fun. Took him a while, but he got us there. Then he questioned seeing why God had to spew us out. I'm going to add one more thought that my wife brought up this morning that uh, I think kind of clinches this unleavened and leavening question. What is served at Passover? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. We've made a big deal out of leavening, and what is leavening and what is not leavening, and what is able to be used and what it not able to be used to the point of distraction where it becomes a bigger issue than the Passover itself almost. What was the second thing we did? Wine. You know how wine is made? It's fermented with yeast. It's fermented with yeast. So we got to throw the wine out. I don't know how we're going to do the Passover. <laughs> when I heard that thought, it just it's absolutely crystallized. You want a clincher? There's one. Can't drink wine during the... I mean, they say beer. 
can't have un- can't have beer because it's got yeast in it. So does wine. Fresh squeezed grapes. I guess we're going to have to go Protestant. Can't be fermented. But you know what? You leave a grape out a few days and it gets, starts getting gray on the edges because of yeast. It does not say that we are to fast for seven days and afflict our souls and not eat food or drink water or breathe air. Because what Frank is trying to get across essentially is that yeast is everywhere. And if you can't take in any kind of yeast, then you can't breathe air. That's how stupid this thing has gotten. I do not trust anybody that throws out Luke, Acts, and Deuteronomy. Sorry. We are to live by every word of God as canonized. Thy word is truth. These are the days of unleavened bread, not the days of unleavened anything else. It was all about the bread, all about the dough, all about Christ's body being the bread of life. It was not the leavening that was the problem. It was when it was baked into something that rose. It was the rising, which equates with pride, vanity, and ego, that was wrong. Because Christ died in absolute, total, sincere humility for us. So, we have unleavened bread. And you don't have to throw out anything that could possibly be a leavening agent. You cannot eat unleavened bread. It is not leavened, it is not puffed up until it is mixed with dough and rises. That is the whole point of the whole thing. If we get that, then you can take away a 200 pages of detailed baloney that can't see the forest for the trees. I'm going to have wine with my pass with God's Passover, and I'm going to have unleavened bread that isn't risen. And it doesn't make any difference what you put in it as long as it doesn't cause it to rise. And I think that sets the story straight. We don't deleaven to the point of forgetting the spiritual. Yes, we put the leaven out. Did those Israelites have time to get every crumb out of the corners of their places before they left? No. They ate in haste. And when that cry came, they left. And they didn't have vacuum cleaners or toasters. I don't know what all they had, but there were, you know what? There were crumbs in the corners of their houses. When you eat bread, crumbs go everywhere. Don't make a religion out of deleavening. Deleaven the self. That's what Paul emphasized in 1 Corinthians 5. That's what he emphasized in 1 Corinthians 11, to examine yourself, examine yourself carefully, whether you be in the faith. We don't examine the crumbs. We don't examine all that. We examine ourselves. That's the whole point. Crumbs don't sin. 
we do. So let's get the balance. Now let's go back to the book of Exodus again, and I I hope to finish up. Man, I've burned a lot of time on that. But I think it's important to put it all together and summarize it so that we get the balanced picture of what God intended instead of getting so enmeshed in the branches we can't see the tree or in the tree we can't see the forest. We came down to chapter 13, verse 11. Uh, It says, When God brings you into the land of the Canaanites, which he swore to your fathers, that you were to set apart everything that opens the matrix, every firstling from man and beast, males, uh, will be the eternals. Uh, And the firstling of an ass you can redeem with a lamb, but if you decide that ass isn't worth a lamb, you can break its neck. And therefore, you don't have to set it aside for God because it's dead. Basically died at birth, (laughs) you know. Uh, You could do that with a a donkey or an unclean animal. But if it was a clean animal, then you uh, set it aside for God. And it was used as a, turned in as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice to God, the first one they had. And the same with your children. They had to be redeemed with a lamb as well. Don't we have to be redeemed by the Lamb of God? If not, we're going to die. So if we're part of the first fruits and to be firstborn among uh, each other uh, under Christ, then we have to be redeemed from this world. So God redeems us through the blood of the Lamb. Perfect spiritual analogy here, carried out physically. So it says, when your son asks you, verse 14, what does all this mean? And you tell him that this is about the strength of hand, how God brought us out of there. And it came to pass, and Pharaoh just wouldn't let us go, that God slew all the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. And that's why I sacrifice to the eternal everything that is the firstborn, so that it reminds us of that. And Christ and the Father do the exact same thing with us. We're among the first fruits. Uh, hopefully, we're part of the uh, 144,000, which are the first fruits, no more, no less. And therefore, we have to re- be redeemed from this world of Satan and man and be uh, committed and set aside, sanctified to be the bride of Christ. What an awesome understanding that is as to our purpose and how it was carried out back here in symbolism so that we might understand it in spiritual terms today. Verse 16, It shall be for a token upon your hand and frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Eternal brought you forth out of Mitzrayim. So he says this is something that is to be your focus You put blinders on a horse so it can only see straight ahead. can't get distracted by stuff on the side. That's what we've done with this leavening issue and with all of that is things become a distraction. We started having the Feast of Tabernacles in vacation places and it was only natural that they become a distraction. I preferred, I tried to get them to have a feast at West Yellowstone. 
right out in the middle of God's creation, and there wasn't anything entertaining around except a few restaurants. But I wanted to get away from the cities and away from the world's entertainment and get out in God's creation so I could see God there. So it is to be our focus, to understand how God has delivered us. And it is an awesome thing when you think about it, about how you came out of this world, God called you and began to give you His truth and to teach you that truth and to set you aside and sanctify you for His purposes. That was a miracle in itself if you really examine your thoughts and your patterns and your way of life and what you thought then as compared to what you think now. Quite a contrast. What a miracle that you began to understand. <clears throat> anyway, continuing, he says, It came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, it was a shorter route, easier to do. For God said, Well, they might see war and repent and return to Egypt. If they get scared... So he says, I'll take them a long way around. See how thoughtful God was? He considered their fears, their humanness, their difficulties. He tried to mollycoddle them and baby them a bit, take good care of them. And so he says, well, you're going to have to walk a little further, but I'll tell you, it'll be an easier journey for you. <laughs> and that's what he did. So was he firm or again him? He was all for them. He wanted them to he wanted them to succeed. Now that's God's attitude. He wouldn't have called you except that he wants you to succeed. Every one of us here God wants in his kingdom and many others that aren't here. And he is going to do what is necessary to get them there. And some will not respond and they will go into the tribulation and they will go through the horrors of war that these people would have seen had they gone through the Philistines. And some will not endure and will fall away. Some will get a root of bitterness. All kinds of things will happen. And once you get a root of bitterness, it's all over. It grows and grows and you can't get rid of it. Read about Esau. Herbert Armstrong emphasized that quite often, that a root of bitterness is the hardest thing there is to ever overcome. Once you let a little bitterness in, uh, it's pretty much all over. Do not ever go there. Because it will cost you your eternal life. The God's for us. And He called us, and He does His best to make it possible for us, but he doesn't make it easy for us. I mean, a longer hike doesn't make it easier. But then going to war doesn't make it easy either. But God's all for us. Who can be against us? Satan the devil. But you know who ultimately controls Satan the devil? God. When he puts the clamps on him, he stops. He rebelled. He thought he was more important and could think above God. But when God told him, okay, get after my servant Job, but stop here, that's where he stopped. Because he knows God is stronger than him. 
But he is going to make one last try. Well, really two. One here at the end of this age and then one at the end of the millennium for a short while. So Moses took the bones of Joseph with him as he had said he would do. And they took their journey from Succoth, which is where they had gathered, and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness. And God went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. They didn't need a GPS. Garmin wasn't around yet. And, and uh, God had his ways, though. I'd rather have this, wouldn't you? Don't have to worry about the map. Don't have to worry about when or where to go. It's just when the cloud moves or when the fire moves. I follow it. Pretty simple. Not only that, at night I can see my way to go. In the daytime, the sun isn't so hot that I can't stand it. Beautiful. He tells us he's going to do the same thing here in the end time, that he's going to put us in this land, in the promised original promised land, and he will be a pillar of fire, or a wall of fire, it says, around us to protect us. Is it the same kind of fire as this? doesn't say, but it represents peace and safety and security in any case, whatever it means. People have speculated it might be these rings of volcanoes we have in this area that scares everybody else off. Might be, I don't know. I don't know exactly how he'll do it. I just know he says he'll do it. And I feel good about that. <laughs> And I don't want to be like an ancient Israelite. You know, these things were written here and all recorded so it'd give us something to think about. So we don't make the same mistakes they made. Okay? We'll see a couple of mistakes they made here in just a minute. So he had that cloud there. <clears throat> and then he told Moses in 14 to speak to them that they camp at Pahahiroth between Migdal and the sea over against Baal Zephon some nice Israelite godly names. Uh, and before it, you shall encamp by the sea. Now, God is leading them into great danger here. From their standpoint, you know, we got problems. There's no way to get away. We're up against the sea, and we got probably terrain problems on either side. And uh, do I hear horses? <laughs> Is there something happening? I think I hear something coming. Anyway, Pharaoh will say, he put them there on purpose for his purposes, but we don't always understand all his purposes, do we? We don't always, we don't always get it. We have to wait and see what he is going to do. So he put them there for several reasons. One is, so Pharaoh would say, ah, they're trapped down there. We'll go get them. That's what it says in verse 3. But God said, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, and he'll follow them, and I will get my honor over Pharaoh and all the host. And they will, the Mitzriamites who are left, will know that I am the Lord. You can read that in Isaiah 44 and 45. How God is going to give his treasures to show the whole world that he is God. Several different ways he's going to do that. But those treasures are one of them. So, a report was made to Pharaoh that 
the people didn't just go three days wilderness into the desert. They just kept on going. They're fleeing. They're trying to get away. Well, he had spent, sent spies, obviously, to keep track of them. And when those spies got back, there's an awful lot in his stories that isn't filled in. You know, the details of their departure from uh, Mitzrayim that night when God killed the firstborn is not all chronicled. You're dealing with three, four million people here or more. And they covered a great area of land. It wasn't like Pharaoh sent a message to Moses and Moses hollered out the door and said, everybody leave. They had to have been coached well ahead of time to know what to do when they heard screaming Egyptians, wherever they were, all over the land of Goshen. They had already been prearranged they would go to Succoth and from there we'll leave the next day. They had been instructed ahead of time to spoil the Mitzriamites as they left. You don't just take three, four million people without a sound truck and uh, big loudspeakers to suddenly divide into ranks of five and know how to do it and how to go about it. <laughs> that had to have been all prearranged so that they knew exactly where to go, what to do, uh, the plan had been made. Otherwise, this would have been absolute and total confusion all the way through. And God is not the author of confusion. So, understand when you read the story, he's just skipping over a lot of detail and giving us the important points. Whatever particular subject you're bringing out at the moment. It is important that we do it seven days, and <laughs> not eight so that's reiterated several different ways. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, coming on down, Pharaoh said, Why have we done this? We have let Israel go from... Man, all of our servants, our slaves are gone. How did we do this? He, he couldn't remember, I guess, ten plagues, including the firstborn just killed. We, we live in the moment, don't we? Isn't that kind of human? Isn't that kind of carnal? I, I need a drink of water. Bring me a beer. They're not around. They're gone. Let's go get them. So he took his people with him in his chariots, 600 chosen chariots, his own secret service, and all the chariots of Mitzram, and captains over every one of them. So the whole army went. And God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, or Mitzrayim, and he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with a high hand. That means in power, feeling secure. It means probably in joy and thanksgiving that they have been released from being slaves. Some of the things we emphasized on the so-called night to be much observed that was placed on the wrong day and in the wrong mood. <clears throat> but they were feeling pretty good about things at that point. We're out of there. Uh, but the Mitzriamites pursued with all these horses, and Pharaoh drew near, and the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Eternal, uh-oh, here they come. We're all going to die. They said to Moses, Weren't there enough places for graves in Mitzrayim? You've taken us out here just so you got more burial room? 
angry, frustrated, upset, sarcastic, rebellious. Murmuring is a pretty mild translation and term. <laughs> they were in a ticked off, angry, rebellious mood. Who were they rebelling against? Moses? God's the one that led them out there. Moses is just the human leader. <coughs> they yelled and screamed at Moses. Didn't believe Moses, but God was behind all that. this. It's no different today. We yell and scream at our physical leaders. There are people that wrote books about what a horrible man Herbert Armstrong was. Probably 90% of it was baloney, or whatever percent you want to pick out. But Herbert Armstrong has led us astray. No, he didn't. Satan and the Tkachas did. Herbert Armstrong didn't. He didn't know everything he needed to... Well, he knew everything he needed to know at the time. We're learning things that we need to know now that he didn't need to know since he was going to die. He wasn't going to preach the gospel and, and uh, the end come. It's been over three decades now. So Moses was the scapegoat here. Is not this the word that we told you in Mitzrayim, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? Don't you remember? We told you to leave us alone. Now you brought us out here, and you're going to make us dig our own graves before we die. It had been better for us to serve the Mitzrayimites than that we should die in the wilderness. I wish I'd have stayed in Dallas or Minneapolis or New York or L.A. You brought us out here to Zion to die, God. Some of us have died. Are we all gonna? Don't think so. God will work His purposes. Moses said to the people, Fear you not. Stand still and see the salvation of the eternal. Does that smack of things that he's told the end time church who is going to build a temple? Fear not. Be strong. Be of good courage and work. Show your faith by your works. This is the same thing, same message. Are we going to do that, or are we going to give up? For the Mitzriamites whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Eternal shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Just stand still and watch what God does. Isn't that the conclusion Habakkuk came to? How long, O oh Lord? Oh, I guess I better just sit still and wait and see what God does. And He will make me ride on high places. We better trust God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And to the Eternal said Moses, Wherefore cry you to me? Speak to the children of Israel that they go forward. <laughs> You're up against, you're on the beach, and you got the Mitzriamites coming from behind, and God tells you to go forward. Do you want to drown, or do you want to get hacked to death? Make up your mind. Was what was in their mind. They had no idea what God was about to do. You know what? You and I don't either. He tells us what the results are going to be. 
But he says it's going to be greater than this delivery we're about to read about here. More impressive, more powerful, more dramatic. Hard to envision. Something more dramatic, more powerful than what you're about to recount. Go forward. Now that they did not want to do. But I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave my job. I I love the city. I don't want to leave my kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. I don't want to go out there in that wilderness. It's hot out there. It gets cold out there. Uh, The sun shines a lot out there. Hey, that's not all bad. Whatever excuses we have. Lot's wife. Well, I, I I just love it there. I mean, all those pretty boys. And I, you know, I like I like handsome, girly men. I don't know what she was thinking. She didn't want to leave her home. She didn't want to leave what was secure to her, what she had become used to. You know, do you want to get used to all the sin in this nation all around you? Do you want to get the use to it being politically correct to say things that are abominable to God are okay and we should just let live and let live? It's okay. We'll pass laws and let them do whatever they want to do and we can't say anything about it or we might go to jail. Don't look back. <laughs> go do what God says to do. It's always been that way. And you know what? It never looks like the best way to a man. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it isn't God's way. It's a way that leads to death. God's way doesn't lead to death. Satan's way leads to death. So whatever seems right to human beings, for the most part, leads to death. Broad is the way that leads to death. Narrow and difficult and ruddy is the way that leads to life because it is contrary to human nature, contrary to human thinking, and contrary uh, to Satan, who is wanting to kill us all. So let's understand the plight we're in and how much we need the Spirit of God to lead us out of sin, and how it is only by the power of God that it can happen. Here... There was no power for them to do anything. If they went forward without some kind of help, they're going to drown. Lift up your rod and stretch it out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Yeah, tell me another one. (laughs) Can you imagine the level of belief in that? I will harden the hearts of the Mitzramites, and they shall follow them, and I will get me honor on this world, on sin. Sin will be eradicated. Come millennial time, somebody will tap you on the shoulder and say, "Uh uh-uh, don't do that. We we, we don't sin here. We, We do this. This is the way. Walk you in it. God's going to fix the problems. And he fixed this problem. Verse 18, 
the Mitzriamite shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh and his chariots and upon his horsemen. I doubt... See, they couldn't all probably hear what Moses was going to say. And with their three, four million of them, they couldn't all see him down there either. They were spread way apart. Somebody told me last night that they had done a study on this some time ago, and when you put everybody in ranks of five, it was 32 miles, if you figured three and a half million people or whatever you used. 32 miles, was it wide or long? Long. 32 miles long. Not counting animals. Not counting animals, right. And how wide? Uh, it had been pretty wide, too. You couldn't see Moses on the beach for 32 miles. It was over the horizon. <laughs> so, those, those guys at the tail end were having trouble. They didn't know what was going on. You know what? Most of the church is in that dilemma today. They don't have a clue what's going on or what God is about to do. I think that's a really good analogy right there. If you're 32 miles back, you're way behind. You're not up to speed. You can't see Moses. And you're scared. So they all begin to scream and shout and yell and rebel. That, that would have been pretty loud, that many people. I think God could have heard it. They're going to know I'm God. So the ones in the back, they didn't have a clue what was going on. Stretched out his hand, and uh, then he removed... He went before the camp of Israel, verse 19, and removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. So they were way back in the ranks and they didn't know what was going along, but instead of this pillar being in front of them now, it went to the back. Then they knew something was going on. I don't know how long it would take for word of mouth to go from the ones that could see Moses by word of mouth back 32 miles, it would take a while. Take a while. So, he put the protection behind them, and they weren't to follow it at that point. God had said, move forward. Doesn't matter where the cloud and the fire are now. Move forward. So he stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Eternal caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind. All that night it blew, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Towering wall of water. That would have been scary too. You want me to go in there? And here come the Egyptians then, or the Mitzriamites. They pursued them, went after them in the midst of the sea, all, even all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, everybody. And in the morning, God looked down through the pillar of fire and the cloud and troubled the host of the Mitzriamites. So God not only parted the seas, but then he took their chariot wheels off. <laughs> And without wheels, a chariot with men in it, pretty hard to drag. 
So the Mitzriamites said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the eternal fights for them against the Mitzriamites. When, when, the, when the wheels all come off your little red wagon, you're in trouble, and you begin to realize something's got to be done here. So the Eternal said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, and the waters will take them. And that's exactly what he did, and the waters returned and covered the chariots. In the verse 28, there remained not so much as one of them. Everybody drowned. You saw the, the movie about this, and it wasn't Christ that did the, kill the firstborn. It was a green fog. And then when the story was over, Pharaoh had gone back, and he sat down on his throne, and he said, Moses, God is God. Well, that's Hollywood for you. Pharaoh never said another word, sorry. <laughs> he drowned. So the leader and the army and most of the people and the animals and the vegetation, that empire was utterly destroyed. Isn't that what God's going to do to this world and Satan's new world order? He's going to completely destroy it so there's nothing left. And nearly all the people along with it. Although he has a plan to bring them back up and teach them salvation. Anyway, verse 31, Israel saw that great work which the Eternal did upon the Mitzrayimites, and the people feared the Eternal and believed the Eternal and his servant Moses. So they got over their bad attitude. They, they did. They, they got over their bad attitude. People can do that, you know. It is possible to change your attitude. Then Moses sang a song to God. I'm not going to go through and read all this, but it's, it's a glorification and a thankfulness and uh, great gratitude for all the wonders that God has just done and how He's delivered them. Uh, so it was a, a wonderful testimony that He gave. And then He says that the dukes of Edom, verse 15, and Moab and Canaan and all those people would hear this story and fear and be in great dread of Israel and their God. And... He says, verse 16, Fear and dread shall fall upon them by the greatness of your arm. They shall be uh, as still as stone. They'll be scared to death. Till your people pass over, O Eternal, till the people pass over which you have purchased. He's redeemed them from slavery. He's redeemed us from the slavery of this world and our carnal nature and Satan. And he will pass over our sins as we keep the Passover with the wine and the bread. You shall bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Eternal, which you have made for you to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Eternal, which your hands have established. That's Zion and Jerusalem. In the original promised land, which is within spitting distance of right here. That's where God is going to do this. Why did He bring us into North America, into this land, and keep us here 430 years? Because this is that place. <laughs> he didn't do it in the Middle East. He did it right here. This is where he established his end time work. It was right here in this country. This is the place. Now, there aren't a hundred people on earth that believe me about that. But it's true. It's going to come to pass. He's going to lead his remnant 
right here to this area, and he's going to build the temple in Jerusalem, and Christ is going to come on that mountain over there with those towers on it that is the Mount of Olives. It's the exact right distance from Jerusalem. I've measured it off. And there ain't no hill over there in the Middle East like that near that old city of the Arabs that they built and claim they built and admit they built. Let's not get off on that right now. <clears throat> I could go for another two hours. But let's finish this. But it's true. This is the place of that inheritance. This is where they were. Let's not forget that. Then Miriam did the same thing and uh, extolled God and His greatness. And then they went forward for a little bit to verse 23. And they came to Marah, and they couldn't drink the water, for they were bitter. They called it Marah, or bitter. And you know what the people did? They complained and griped and moaned and against Moses, saying, What are we going to drink? He cried to the Eternal, and the Eternal showed him a tree. He said, Throw that in there. So he did, and the water became sweet. He says, if you just obey me and do what I say, I won't put the diseases of Egypt on you and I'll take care of you. I really want to take care of you. Why don't you quit sinning and complaining and griping and murmuring and saying you sent us the wrong leader and you're not the right God? When do we learn? When do we ever learn? So anyway, after that great deliverance by the power and might of God of both ends, the Passover night and at the Red Sea, and the first thing they did when they had a little adversity was start complaining. So they took their journey from Elam, and they came to the uh, 15th day of the second month. Uh, the whole congregation of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. Now they're griping at Aaron too, not just Moses. And he said, we came, you brought us out here to starve to death. First it was, you brought us out here to die of thirst. Now it's to starve to death. Man, we were sitting by the flesh pots. We had all the stuff there we could eat. We had bread to the full. And you brought us out here to kill this whole assembly. with Your whole object this whole time, Moses, was to bring us out here and starve us to death. First gripe, you brought us out here to... Make us die of thirst. That was your whole purpose. Oh, they forgot that after they got water. Now your purpose was to starve us to death. Now we got you figured out. We know what your attitude and your mood and what your purpose was. You didn't have our best interests in mind at all. You brought us out here to starve us. You're a bad leader. And you had wrong motives all the time. You came out here to get rich off this land by charging $100 a month to live here. Boy, that's going to make you rich. Don't get me started. Same stuff. Same exact stuff. Verse 8, Moses said, God's going to give you flesh and bread, and your murmurings are not against us, but against God. That was established early. Korah, same thing, was against God, not against Moses. That was ultimately who they were blaming. Because God is the one who put Moses there, and Moses was a bad leader. So it's really, it's God's fault. That's getting real close to blasphemy, isn't it? That can get the ground opened on you. <laughs> you know, 
bad things can happen when you start questioning. Anyway, he gave them manna, the what's it, what's this stuff, and he gave them quail. So they had bread and quail as much as they could possibly eat. And if they got too much, it bred worms and stank. Except on Friday. If they gathered twice as much, it didn't breed worms and stink. What was the first lesson God began to really teach them, other than leadership of His ministry, when they got out there? The Sabbath. He taught them the Sabbath very, very clearly. What was the first doctrine in restoring truth in the end time that God gave Herbert Armstrong? The Sabbath. That's where it started. And it went from there and grew. God repeats these patterns. So, uh, he told them, don't bake on the Sabbath. This, this stuff will not rot. It'll still be good. And then they had manna for 40 years, verse 35. Uh, let's see. He recounts the story here about how they were thirsty and then how they were had been brought out there to die of hunger and, and all these things and accusations. And then Jethro, his father-in-law, Moses' father-in-law, uh, said, you know, you're trying to make judgments on all the difficulties that three and a half, four million people are having. Uh, why don't you appoint those to help? So a ministry was set up, if you will, uh, of judges. God has done that in the past, and He still does it. The New Testament is very clear on that. So God had put human beings in charge. He was still in charge of Moses, but He put Mar Mar Moses in charge of these judges that were set up. You know, they, God doesn't say much about the lineage of Moses. Have you noticed that? He's very, very explicit about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and what would happen to them. Why? They were Jews. They were of Judah. And the line of Christ was going to come through Judah, and the promise would be through Judah. You know what most Jews believe? They believe Moses was a Jew. Moses wasn't a Jew. Moses was a Levite. We don't need the history. We don't need all of his lineage. It barely mentions his wife, and that's partly because she rebelled about the circumcision. And maybe a, a wrong wife that he married later uh, that got Aaron and Miriam stirred up. Uh, he may have actually infringed on God's instructions there when he married Zipporah. But uh, God was dealing with Moses, and that really wasn't any of Aaron and, and uh, Miriam's business because Moses was a servant of God. And it was God's job to take care of Moses. It wasn't their job. So they learned about government pretty early, too. Took Herbert Armstrong a while to learn about it. And he even said when he did learn about it, he changed. So they quote a letter he wrote very early in his ministry, which was wrong about government, and say, well, that was what God originally gave. No, it wasn't what God originally gave. It's what he came up with as a result of his Protestant upbringing, as a result of his experience in business, and all those things. Later on, he saw what God had done and corrected it. People can't see that. They want to believe what they want to believe. Anyway, 
It comes up to Pentecost, and God said to sanctify yourselves because I brought you out on eagle's wings, chapter 19, verse 4. And uh, you're, let's read this. Now, therefore, verse 5, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a particular treasure to me above all people. Isn't it nice to be mentioned as a treasure of God? God treasures you and me. Do we grasp that? I don't think we really do. I look at myself, and I make judgments about me, and I get very frustrated with myself. And I don't like me very much a lot of the time. And I don't treasure my nature. I don't treasure my thoughts. I don't treasure what I am as a carnal, wretched human being. I don't treasure that. What God treasures is that He has created something that is fearfully and wonderfully made that got led astray and followed its own ways and would not follow Him and complained and griped about everything He did from the Garden of Eden on. But He knows what He's going to do with us. He's going to turn us into a true treasure. Now, in the meantime, <laughs> that which is to become his treasure is cankered and dirty and is laid in the mud and the dirt and is not very pretty. I'm sorry. But we've got to be beautiful and have beautiful feet, bringing his message, living his way of life so that our feet are guided in the way of truth. That's what makes feet beautiful. Feet aren't very pretty a lot of times of themselves. Bunions and blisters and fallen arches and crooked toenails and you name it. What makes them beautiful is if they walk the way of God. And then they become beautiful. And he tells us to do that here at the end. And be a kingdom of priests. And rule with Christ as kings and priests through the millennium. That's mentioned all the way back here when he makes this original covenant. Moses came and called the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Eternal had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Eternal has spoken, we will do. That was a mighty loud attestation when three and a half, four, five million people raise their voices in unison and says, we will do all that the Eternal says. Repeated it back to him. They had good intentions there, didn't they? So, Pentecost came. The law was given. Moses brought it back down. And they were having a dance around the golden calf. After all that. Well, that pretty well gets the story through. That, that opens a whole other chapter there. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness and their carcasses dying uh, is an example for us that we better not rebel against whatever it is that God is doing whenever He's doing it and through whomever He is doing it. We better be very, very careful. So this is Attitude Adjustment Week. And we need to be sure that we are in line with what God has in mind and what He is doing. So we'll stop there for today.